This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, October 27, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. American Republicans, conservatives in particular, once held the ideas of Barry Goldwater as their North Star. Today, it's hard to say that conservatism is doing particularly well. Keenly aware of this is Jeff Flake, Republican U.S. Senator from Arizona. He spoke at the Cato Club 200 event in Laguna Beach, California. Thank you, Peter. I don't want to say anything after that. I'll just uh, leave. <laughs> but uh, I, I do appreciate that introduction. I have always appreciated Cato for so many things. I'll get to some of those, but I appreciate you for having this event, the montage, here in California. <laughs> and uh, so close to Arizona, but yet so far in terms of topography and water. Um, <laughs> My wife, Cheryl, sitting right in front of us. Cheryl is a Californian, a Northern Californian. We met on the first day of college for Cheryl, but, uh, just after I'd returned from a Mormon mission in South Africa and Zimbabwe. Uh, we met on the beach in Hawaii. BYU has a nice campus on the North Shore. And uh, I don't remember much about school <laughs> there, but... Uh, <laughs> We met on the first day, and seven years later, actually, we went back to that same spot that we had married and had two kids by that time, and uh, we reminisced about meeting there on the beach, and then we drove up to the school. This is unfortunately a true story. And I said to Cheryl, I said, These, it's changed here quite a bit. Um, I said, that's a new building there on the right. She said, no, that's the library. <laughs> <laughs> It was new to me, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but we got a little more serious when we got to BYU Provo. And uh, anyway, we uh, we have five children. Um, our uh, fourth, when you mentioned Namibia, our fourth child, the third son, is in Namibia as we speak on a Mormon mission. And uh, Cheryl and I spent a year there, the year that Namibia gained its independence uh, from South Africa. And uh, then Tanner is there now. And so it's, it's a wonderful place. The president referred to it the other day as Nambia. <laughs> but, uh, but that's, uh, I actually, I actually uh, tweeted out in his defense, uh, because I've, I'm introduced a lot of things and people, you know, Peter having been there knows how to say it, but nine times out of 10, people say Jeff spent a year in Nambia. So I said, give the president a break on this. Uh, it happens. So anyway, our son, our final son, our fifth child, Dallin, is here with us today. He's 17 years old, still in high school, and uh, will be applying to school. Dallin spent uh, part of the summer as a page in the Senate. And let me tell you, it was wonderful for him. He enjoyed the time, but it's even more uh, better for me as a father to have your son have to open the door for you when you go <laughs> onto the Senate floor and have, you know, having to get water for me as we speak and uh, call me sir and senator. I mean, that's... You don't get that anywhere else. It's just great. So, <laughs> but anyway, we're glad to have Dallin here as well. When I was at the Goldwater Institute, uh, 1992 to 1999, the Cato Institute was always the gold standard. And we leaned on uh, the Cato Institute for research. We stole and cribbed what we could. <laughs> and I've always appreciated uh, what you've done. And then when I got to Congress in, in the year 2001, from that point on, I kept stealing <laughs> the Cato Institute's work. I've uh, always found a, a ready and willing audience to hear uh, you know, about my obsession, I guess, with Cuba. I've always felt that uh, 
Americans ought to be able to travel wherever they want, unless there's a compelling national security reason, and there never was there. And I always thought, if somebody's going to limit my travel, it ought to be a communist, <laughs> not, not my own government. <laughs> you know, that's their province. Let them do it. Let Americans go wherever. And, and it, as it turns out, it's, it's good for Cubans. It's good for Americans as well. Um, in Cuba today, because President Obama in 2010 allowed Cuban Americans to travel as much as they want, lifted that cap completely, lifted the cap on remittances that they could give to family members in Cuba over just a five or six year period. You've seen from virtually no private sector employment in Cuba to now 25% of the Cuban workforce is in the private sector, running private restaurants, uh, bed and breakfast, beauty shops, auto repair facilities, making good money. The average waiter in a private restaurant in Cuba makes $50 a day. The average waiter in a government restaurant right next door to it makes $20 a month. Um, so they, ha they enjoy economic and political freedom that they wouldn't otherwise. And so it's, it's a good, good thing. And I've always thought if you want to really punish the Castro brothers, just make them deal with spring break once or twice. You know, that's, <laughs> serve them right. <laughs> so please, please go there. <laughs> and I, I've actually spent some time in Cuba with some of you. Um, also, uh, I've, uh, I've gleaned a lot from the Cato Institute on government spending, obviously, but uh, in particular, uh, the farm bill and farm subsidies. Now, how out of whack are our farm subsidies when we're actually paying tens of millions of dollars right now every year to the government of Brazil because they want a judgment in the, uh, in the IMF with regard to, or I'm sorry, the WTO with regard to our cotton subsidies. So rather than cut our cotton subsidies, we've agreed to subsidize their production of cotton so we can continue to subsidize ours. Now that's out of whack. And so when I first got to Congress, I uh, went to argue uh, farm policy on uh, the floor of the House. It's my first year, one of my first debates. And uh, I stood up and started arguing why we ought to cut these farm subsidies. And I sat down, thought I'd done a good job. And then somebody stood up after me. It was Marion Barry, not the mayor of, uh, <laughs> of DC. There's a Marion Barry, a congressman from Arkansas. Uh, who had a lot of farms himself and collected quite a few subsidies, too. But he got up and he said, uh, in a thick drawl, he said, that young feller just spoke, doesn't know a lick about farming. So I thought, I can't let that pass. You know, so I, I got somebody to yield me time, and I went back up and I said, hey, I, I just want you to know, if you look at my right index finger, the end of it is gone. I, I lost it uh, in an alfalfa field at age five. I said, I've forgotten a lot about farming over the years, but I still know manure when it's shoveled. And I, as soon as I said that, I thought, oh, man, I shouldn't have said that. And sure enough, it was uh, the featured quote in the Wall Street Journal the next day. And I thought, oh, I better, uh, better be careful about that. But whenever my, uh, my staff after that, when, whenever they'd write a speech or talking points, they leave a blank at the top and say, insert farm analogy here. <laughs> and uh, they just know I would. And, and I often have. In fact, another one, you mentioned the, the earmarks. Uh, I've talked a lot about that and written about that. But one that I wrote about as well, um, everybody's done eating, right? <laughs> okay, <laughs> just checking. Um, my, one of my uh, 
I don't know, favorite, but one of my jobs as a young ranch hand and farm hand was uh, what I called bloat watch. My dad would sit me up on the what we called the tank bank, looking over the alfalfa fields in the springtime. Uh, the first cutting of alfalfa, it's, it's still cool up in Snowflake. It's like 5,600 feet elevation, still cool up there. And the uh, first cutting grows really slow, so it's very potent and very uh, gaseous, I guess. And the cattle, uh, you know, have cows have four stomachs, and they want to fill all of them, and uh, they just can't stop. And so they, they go, and they eat, and they eat, and they eat till they can't eat anymore, and some of them will just fall over and bloat. And it's... Uh, and once they do, they're constricted, their airflow is constricted, and they die. And the only way to save them at that point is uh, you take a knife. And as a little kid, my dad would put me on the tank bank with a, a big knife, and, and uh, you run out there and make sure its left side was exposed. If it wasn't, you could easily roll the cow over because uh, their feet were sticking out. And then you take the knife and just stab behind the last rib and the halage just spews upward, sometimes, you know, eight, ten feet in the air. And then you kind of take cover as a little kid. And it's, sure, it's not too pleasant for the cow, but uh, the, other, the alternative is diet. So, uh, so they thank you and get up and start eating again. <laughs> but anyway, I, I mentioned uh, when I got to Washington that I had wished I'd brought in my bloat knife because... Uh, <laughs> I'd never seen bloat like I've seen in Washington, but uh, anyway, but that uh, farm analogy is best done after dinner, usually. But let me just talk about, uh, I've been asked to t say a few words about uh, populism and freedom and where we go from here. In 1960, uh, Barry Goldwater felt that the conservative movement and the Republican Party at that time had been compromised by the New Deal. So he wrote uh, what he considered kind of a blueprint or a manifesto for the party at that time, the original conscience of a conservative. And it has become kind of the Bible uh, for a lot of conservatives and, uh, and Republicans over the years. He uh, um, Later on, when I got to, to Congress, and uh, Peter mentioned the, some of the fights over earmarks at that time and spending, I just remember at about 2005, 2006 was kind of the, the apex of the earmark movement and, and just the corruption that went on. A couple of our colleagues were in jail for getting money under the table for earmarks. And uh, the only thing worse than the illegal stuff was what was legal uh, going on at that time with campaign contributions and everything else. And, and I thought we, we had control of the House, we had control of the Senate, and we had the White House as Republicans, and I felt uh, we're going to lose it all, and we ultimately did. And when I knew we were going to lose it all is when I, I realized that we used to be the party of ideas. During the 1990s, Dick Armey and Bill Archer, Dick Armey ultimately the majority leader, and Bill Archer, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, two Republicans, used to go around the country, and they actually had a a shirt, I still have one, just to remind me of what it was like when we were the party of ideas uh, with uh, like concert dates where they were in certain cities, lecture halls, which they would sell out to argue the benefits of a flat tax versus a consumption tax. And uh, I thought we have gone so far from that when at that time in 2005, 2006, 
Uh, we, as a party, had forgotten that we were the party of limited government. And, and because we couldn't claim that mantle anymore, what did we do? We started arguing about flag burning and Terry Schiavo and taking the cultural wedge issues. And when the other day we went and started talking about football and the anthem, I thought, here we are again. Here we are again. Let's get back to ideas that animated the party. And that's what Goldwater was concerned about in 1960. And I, I feel this time, this time we're facing something different. I think we've been compromised not so much by the New Deal, although the programs, the, the big ones still grow and are still there, but we've been compromised by something else. In the late 1990s, conservative gadfly Roger Stone, who has kind of resurfaced in the last couple of years as the Trump whisperer, um, he began to observe not disprovingly that popular culture had been more, had become more influential than politics. Uh, he was obviously onto something. It now seems that uh, conservatism has been compromised by a very unconservative stew of uh, celebrity and or authoritarianism, and it's not a good look uh, as a Republican. Uh, we often hear terms like economic nationalism, America first as a slogan. What does that mean? You can argue about what it means, but I can tell you the manifestations are protectionism, nativism, and anti-immigration sentiment, and irrational fear of trade deficits, for example. Now, Friedrich Hayek was the most prescient uh, of all the problems of conservatism in the 21st century. He even wrote a piece in 1960 called Why I Am Not a Conservative. Um, his feeling what he was really concerned about was extreme nationalism. He said, and I quote, connected with the conservative distrust of the new and the strange is its hostility to internationalism, he's talking about extreme nationalism, and its proneness to strident nationalism. Quote, here is another source of its weakness in the struggle of ideas. It cannot alter the fact that the ideas which are changing our civilization respect no boundaries but refusal to acquaint oneself with new ideas merely deprives one of the power of effectively countering them when necessary. The growth of ideas is an international process, and only those who fully take part in the discussion will be able to exercise a significant influence. He went on, it's no real argument to say that an idea is un-American, un-British, or un-German nor is a mistaken or vicious ideal better for having been conceived by one of our compatriots. It is this nationalistic bias which frequently provides the bridge from conservatism to collectivism to think in terms of our industry or resource, which is only a short step away from demanding that these national assets be directed in the national interest. Now, populist ideas, as we know, are often pitted against reality. It's an ugly fact that, uh, that populism sells well, obviously. It's called populism for a reason. It's popular. Um, and uh, reality doesn't sell very well on the campaign trail, in particular something like the benefits of free trade. It's always easy for a politician to point to a shuttered factory and to find a scapegoat. It's that trade deal. It's NAFTA, or it's Mexico, or the Chinese. 
rather than tell the truth about modernization, mechanization, automation, and the more efficient allocation of capital, all things that have made our lives better. But those things are difficult to explain during a campaign. But for those of us who've been elected, our job is to communicate. And I think we must communicate. We can't just pander and promise impossible things. Certain jobs will come back, for example. The truth is that there's no easy solution to a changing economy. The truth is that we as a country manufacture twice as much as we did in the 1980s with 30% fewer workers. Auto plants that once employed hundreds will now employ only dozens. That automa automation has made our economy more productive than it's ever been. We'll simply have to find a way to make sure that those who are starting out go into engineering rather than my chosen field, political science. Are you hearing that, Dallin? <laughs> if you're 40 or 50 years old, that the future includes you as well. Uh, but it will be the future, not a rose-colored past. And it won't be easy. Anybody who tells you it is easy is not telling you the truth. Another thing that we have to, to say and recognize is that globalization has occurred. That is a reality. Free trade agreements didn't create globalization. They are a result of it. And the question is, do we adapt uh, to this uh, global trend um, and uh, maintain our position as the largest and most innovative economy? Or do we pretend that it hasn't happened? Pretend that we can turn back the, the clock. In my first uh, campaign uh, for the Senate six years ago, there was a blog post that came up that uh, mentioned that uh, Jeff Flake was seen in the company of globalists in Paris. <laughs> I thought at that time, I'm not sure who else I would find in Paris but globalists. <laughs> um, my reaction was, what uh, is the alternative to be a provincialist? A parochialist? I'm not sure, but the term globalist, if you look in the Twitter sphere today, the slight that they want to give some Republicans or others that, that they are globalists. Well, uh, typically, um, after a campaign, then the parties will get together and do what we know we have to do. We'll, usually in a lame duck session, approve trade promotion authority or approve a particular trade deal. But not this time, uh, because both major parties uh, became anti-trade parties. We pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership just after the election. As soon as we did, the remaining countries in the TPP started negotiating amongst themselves on agriculture deals. And we are left aside. Turning to NAFTA for a minute, uh, prior to NAFTA, we had less than eight, or I'm sorry, less than $80 billion in trade with Mexico. Uh, today, today, it's approaching $600 billion. My view is what's not to like about that? Uh, but from today's Washington Post, this is this morning, said President Trump's Twitter bombs and rhetorical attacks on what he calls the worst trade deal ever made and his administration's vague and confusing proposals have dismayed Canada which is now exploring backup options. And they have infuriated Mexico ahead of a presidential election in which voters are demanding that their leaders stand up to the United States. 
If officials cannot make progress in revising the North American Free Trade Agreement next week, the meetings in Washington starting Wednesday are the fourth of seven scheduled rounds of negotiation. The odds of reaching a deal will decrease even more. That will give an opening to Trump uh, to exit the agreement, a move that would disrupt the North American economy. It would do more than disrupt the North American economy. It wouldn't just affect the North American economy. It would affect other countries who have free trade agreements with us or others who were seeking to enter free trade agreements with us uh, because we won't be a reliable partner and uh, we will have fewer opportunities to open up markets for our goods. The way I look at it uh, broadly is we are less than 5% of the world's population. We are in this country less than 20% of the world's economic output and shrinking, not because we're shrinking, but the developing world is growing faster. If we don't trade, we don't grow. It's as simple as that. And uh, moving away from trade, uh, talking about the economic benefits to the geopolitical ramifications, just take the P TPP. Uh, there are countries, particularly in Southeast East Asia and the Pacific Rim, who want to be in our trade orbit. Uh, but if we won't, then China will move right in and we would benefit significantly, as would they, to have them at least in our trade orbit in, in part, if not in whole. So it, it carries great political ramifications as well. And with regard to Mexico, too, it doesn't just matter what comes out of the, the, the NAFTA deal, just the rhetoric sometimes about Mexico, about a wall that they're going to pay for or tweeting about crime statistics in Mexico in a demeaning way has an impact on politics in Mexico. There's an election next year. There's a very leftist uh, populist candidate, Obrador, who stands to gain by the anti-American sentiment. Uh, we have a good relationship as it now stands. As you know, um, and Cato has pointed out, uh, migration has been southward in terms of Mexican migrant workers over the past couple of years. Uh, that won't be the case if Mexico elects a leftist populist leader. Their progress on privatization, rule of law, um, criminal justice reforms, anti-cartel activity will all be turned back. And, and so it is not just the policy in the end, but it's the rhetoric that matters as well, and that concerns me greatly. I think it ought to concern all of us. Uh, a couple of other issues that are coming up, uh, people have asked about uh, Iran and the possible decertification of the Iran agreement. My own view on that is I, I think that the agreement that was struck by the last administration, uh, I wish that it would have been presented as a treaty. I think that it was lacking uh, big time because it didn't address, it only addressed the nuclear issue I think we could have. And I think Congress actually would have stepped up and worked with the president to have an agreement that addressed more than just the nuclear issue. Having said that, now that it's in place and Iran has recognized or realized the benefits of it in terms of money that has been released, that it was theirs, but it was released, as well as uh, trade now with Europe and other American companies seeking trade deals as well. Why in the world would we, with Iran already having the benefits of the deal, give them license now to get out of, the, out of the nuclear portion of the agreement, which they are complying with? And we are better off if they comply at least with the nuclear side of the deal. They 
There's still a lot of malign behavior that we need to deal with in the region, but it would only be made worse if they were closer to having a nuclear weapon, particularly in a world where North Korea is very close. So I, I agree with General Mattis and others who, who say, let's leave that one alone for now. Let's at least keep them uh, complying with their, their regulatory, or I'm sorry, with the, uh, with the nuclear side of the agreement. Some things that give me great hope about the future. Uh, on, over the past several months, I think the regulatory state that has been so stifling of business and freedom for individuals and companies, small and large, uh, we've hit the pause button there. And I credit the administration and in many of the agencies for that. I put out a press release the other day and realized after I'd done it, I had actually complimented the EPA for working with us on an issue in Arizona, <laughs> a dust abatement issue or something, because we just, I just don't remember ever having done that. Um, so on the regulatory side, and we in Congress passed 14 so-called CRAs, or Congressional Review Acts, which according to CBO will save businesses about $58 billion just over the, uh, the next 10 years. So on the regulatory side, it's been good. On the tax side, I hope, having failed to get uh, health care reform, and let me just say on health care, Arizona, as most of you know, is ground zero for the failure of the Obamacare exchange. 155,000 Arizonans woke up this morning having paid the fine to the federal government, still don't have insurance. They have nothing. They've paid a total of $93 million to the federal government and still have no insurance. So it's, 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 it's got to be fixed. I wish that we could have opened the door in the end, obviously. We'll need to work across the aisle. It'll be a bipartisan solution on a lot of it, but we had to start it. and It was uh, too bad that we didn't. Uh, with regard to tax reform, uh, the framework, I think, is good uh, that the, the administration has put forward. Uh, we'll be working on that in the coming months. And uh, in the coming, well, it's going to be a feverish couple of months. I think it has to be done before the end of the year. Um, I think we're going to look at a Christmas Eve vote. Sorry, Cheryl. <laughs> That's what uh, is probably heading toward. But, uh, but anyway, back to the, the, the bigger picture. Um, I'm very optimistic for the long-term future. I think we need to get through some bumps, and I'm very concerned about where the, my party, the Republican Party, is, where the conservative movement is. I th think we need to have a course correction, as we, we have done in the past. Uh, but I still recognize that we are the envy of the world. This is where people want to come and live associate and start businesses. And every once in a while, you get a bigger taste of that. And I, I got a bit of it uh, in December of 2014. I had, uh, Cheryl and I, as mentioned, have been traveling to Cuba uh, for the past 16 years. We actually took our kids uh, down uh, last year. But uh, in 2014, Alan Gross, a contractor from USAID, had been uh, taken by the Cubans and accused of being a spy, convicted of being a spy, and put in prison. Uh, we wanted to make some progress on diplomatic relations and lifting the trade ban and, and other things, but it couldn't be done as long as the Cubans were holding uh, Alan Gross. I'd been to see him in prison in uh, Havana. He was at wit's end by November of 2014. 
saying that he was going to take his life if he was left any longer in prison. I got home and went to the White House and said, I hope you're negotiating for his release. Um, if, you're, if you're not, uh, you'd better hurry. They were. And I got a call a couple weeks later asking if I would uh, undertake a sensitive mission that I couldn't tell my wife or my staff about. I thought, that's why I came to the Senate. This, <laughs> they involve an, involve an island somewhere. And uh, they, they said, can you be at Andrews Air Force Base at 5 a.m. On, uh, on Wednesday? This was a Monday. And so that's where I went. And there was Pat Leahy, Democrat senator from Vermont. We'd been working together on this issue. And Alan Gross's wife, Judy, who we'd been working with trying to secure the release of her husband. And we got on one of the president's planes and... Uh, Undertook, if you've seen Bridge of Spies, this was a kind of the latest Cold War era spy swap. And, uh, and we flew off toward Cuba. A uh, plane took off just after we did um, to pick up a Cuban national who had been a CIA asset for us 20 years before, but had been in a Cuban prison for 20 years. Uh, he was to be taken to parts unknown. We still don't know where he went. Uh, another plane took off from Miami carrying three Cubans who had been convicted and had been in U.S. prisons for, for the past seven years. And we all landed uh, in Havana at separate airfields um, at the same time. And uh, we got off and went in and greeted Alan and then uh, went and met with the foreign minister very briefly and back out to the plane and exactly 31 minutes after we landed, uh, we got on the plane and took off again. And I'll never forget, uh, uh, when we were in the air for about 25 minutes, uh, the, our pilot came on and said, we've now entered U.S. airspace. And uh, Alan Gross stood up, humped his fists in the air, and then just breathed in and out very deeply uh, several times and said, now I know I'm free. And, uh, and it just is something I'll never forget. As soon as we landed... Uh, our president and uh, the president of Cuba had uh, press conferences announcing that we would have uh, diplomatic relations. And a few months later, I flew down uh, to Cuba with uh, three Marines, over eight, former Marines over 80 years old, who were the three Marines who lowered the flag over the U.S. Embassy in Cuba. Uh, they wanted to be there to raise it up uh, 54 years later. And it was just a, an incredible experience. And it said to me once again, uh, despite the challenges we have in this country and the things that we need to work out, that this is the greatest country in the world. It's still a place where we have the most freedom. And uh, thanks to groups like the Cato Institute, I think we will long into the future. So thank you for having me here and be glad to try to answer any questions. Jeff Flake is a U.S. Senator from Arizona. He spoke at the Cato Club 200 event in Laguna Beach, California. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.